Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, fabricating data, young sperm, and memorization. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Susan Lin, who will talk about creating a commercial-free childhood. Also, we'll find out what a Feynman diagram is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on Berkeley Grok. Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Not too bad. It's been another great week of science, huh? You know, every week that there's science going on, I think I'm lucky to be alive. Wow. You know, if science stopped, I think the universe would uh, fail to exist at that point. Indeed, the wave function would collapse, huh? That's only if we measured in the wrong way, right? Of course. So there's actually a couple of interesting pieces from Pop Science this week. So Charles, how much of your data was fabricated in your last publication? Well, I'd have to say uh, nearly between 0 and 100%. Wow. Why did you go for the 100%? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe that's because it's just wrong. Isn't a little bit wrong the same as being completely wrong? Well, you know, I, I kind of like doing science rather than fiction. Ah. But perhaps one day I could combine them to make science fiction. So it turns out there was two graduate students at MIT who fabricated an entire proceeding for a conference. And what they did was they got a bunch of old papers and they ran it through some computer algorithm and generated a completely new paper that technically the jargon may be feasible, but in fact yeah, it's completely meaningless. Maybe it has some hidden meaning. Well, they submitted it and it was accepted to the conference. Well, you know, I've been to a lot of conferences and I can say that even things that have been done with good faith oftentimes are meaningless and gibberish. Of course, this stunt has actually been done before, but they wanted to see if these conference organizers were really serious and actually peer-reviewing the material. You know, most of the conferences are usually just an excuse to get together and drink beer. Of course. <laughs> Seeing uh, some people get completely wasted. Yeah, so what's their point, really? <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they plan to go, and they've actually received donations of over $2,000 to have them sent to this conference. Okay, and the other piece of great news is Bill Nye's coming back. Oh, back on the air. Yes, I've heard. Yes. Bill Nye the Science Guy. It's going to be a TV show called The Eyes of Nye. It's better than the eyes than other anatomical parts of Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out he actually had his beginnings in a radio show in Seattle. And indeed, of course, he had the popular television show as well. Right. So The Eyes of Nye are going to, is also going to be a popular science kid show. Not much has been said as to the content, but there's actually a website where you can check it out. It's just www.eyesofnye.org. All right, and then uh, we'll start moving to everybody's favorite subject, sex. Oh, yeah. If you spell it backwards, it's X-E-S. Make an algorithm of it, it's E-X-S. Wow, X-S. I love it. Of course, sex is always good with your X's, but... <laughs> Anyway, it turns out that crickets prefer young sperm over old sperm. Wow. I thought that was like human thing. I'm not sure. What kind of sperm do you prefer? Well, mine own, of course. <laughs> so it turns out, though, that researchers have been curious. Why is it that certain types of crickets reproduce much more strongly with other types of crickets, depending on the motility of their sperm? So they're concluding that it's the age of the sperm. They do uh, conclude that the age of the sperm perhaps might make uh, certain types of sperm more sprightly and quick to move to their target. Mm -hmm. They basically looked at this. They tested it in a number of crickets. They radioactively labeled their sperm, which I guess 
guess the crickets didn't mind. <laughs> and they checked in the females to see which kind of sperm they were stored more often. And uh-huh. it looked like the youngest sperm were stored in the female crickets, much more prevalent than the older sperm. Wow. I wonder, are we beyond our expiration date? <laughs> Turns out that the male crickets might actually relieve themselves of all the older sperm to make way for the younger sperm, oh. even when no females are around. Really? Hmm. An evolutionary adaptation, which I'm sure can be... Enjoyable. Well, maybe to the sperm or to the cricket. <laughs> Uh, this is actually a very interesting work. It was published by Michael Sivajothi of the University of Sheffield and Klaus Reinhardt at Illinois State University. They published this in the American Naturalist. What's your favorite movie of the year so far? Perhaps I don't have a favorite movie of the year yet, but perhaps Star Wars might that honor. Yes, episode three, right? So have you seen this IMAX movie about deep sea volcanoes? Uh, no, I haven't. In case you're wondering why, it, it could be a movie by some fundamental Christians who are offended by its reference to uh, evolution. Explain. And as a result, there's been some pressure or some suggestions that it was canceled due to these Christians. Well, you know, volcanoes are just sort of offensive by nature. <laughs> they burn everything, right? They're uh, so hot and spicy. <laughs> But anyways, this is more prevalent in the uh, southern cities of the U.S. Do the southern cities even have IMAX? Uh, apparently <laughs> do, but anyway, so it's just an interesting concern that's been raised since you would think that these educational programs are readily available everywhere in the U.S., but uh-huh. apparently it's not. Well, what does volcanoes have to do with evolution? Maybe they're mentioning about life forms that evolve from these extreme conditions or uh, whatnot. That's right. I guess there are a number of extremophiles, as they call them, right. which live in these unusual conditions. Hot conditions. Spicy conditions. And apparently uh, it wasn't because of evolution, I guess. <laughs> Alright, well, that's an uh, interesting reason for not showing a movie. <laughs> Personally, I would have rather have them ban the passion, but... <laughs> <laughs> so this is my uh, entertainment review this week. Alright, and finally, how many digits of pi do you know? Uh, maybe six or seven. Okay. 3.14159. I think. Jeez, you're good. Well, I'm not as good, apparently, as Daniel Tammet, who set the European record for pi memorization. His feat was 22,514 digits. Wow. And he memorized that in just over five hours. Is he a savant or something? Well, apparently he has a condition known as synesthesia. Uh-huh. And this is a condition which allows people to sort of mix their uh, sensory modalities. Okay. So, for instance, somebody will hear something, let's say, they'll describe a sound as having a certain color, for instance. Right. Or a taste as having a certain shape. Mm -hmm. So, basically, it sort of mixes the different senses. So, he apparently attributed his ability to memorize all these digits by saying that the numbers appeared to him like a three-dimensional landscape. Wow. And he was just able to trace out the path along this landscape. I just wonder what it looked like. A bunch of researchers were actually interested in to see if this sort of phenomenon was actually the case for his being able to memorize. So, a group of researchers at the University of California at San Diego led by Dr. Vilyanir Ramachandran, Shai Alzuli, and Edward Hubble, tested this by giving him a different numbers with the same font size, and he was able to memorize that quite easily. Right. But when they gave him numbers of different font sizes, that apparently screwed up his ability to make these associations. Huh. So apparently his ability to sense these landscapes was highly font-dependent. <laughs> <laughs> Times New Roman, perhaps. <laughs> 12 point, not bolded. But so anyway, it seems to indicate that his synesthesia explanation might indeed be true. Wow. Remember that, next time you need a memorized pie. Or your phone number. Or E. It's <laughs> 2.718281828455-9045. Is that your phone number or E? That's E. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Dr. Susan Lin will join us to discuss creating a commercial-free childhood. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, in today's day and age, we are constantly inundated by commercials and advertisements promising to make us healthier and happier for only 1995. Even the most strong-willed sometimes succumb to these covert messages. Now imagine how much more difficult it must be for children to resist these temptations, especially when the advertisements air directly towards them. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss creating a commercial-free childhood is Dr. Susan Lin. Dr. Lin is Associate Director of the Media Center of the Judge Baker Children's Center, an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and co-founder of the National Coalition to Stop Commercial Exploitation of Children. She has written extensively on these issues, her work appearing in places like The Washington Post and Los Angeles Times. She has produced numerous videos on these topics, one of which won the 1996 Media Award from the Association of Multicultural Educators. Dr. Lin, Thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Oh, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and certainly uh, with regards to a very important and very interesting issue. So I'm curious, really, what problems for airing commercials actually towards children? Well, you know, the thing is that it's not just commercials anymore. Really, when we think about marketing, what we have to realize is it's just gone way beyond commercials. So in addition to those 15-second spots, there's also product placement where ads are inserted right into programs. There's brand licensing where, you know, you can't take a child to the movies anymore without having that character be associated with tons and tons of different brands. When The Cat in the Hat came out, there were 40 brands that were associated with the film and really thousands of products. Also, something called stealth marketing, where kids are being encouraged to market to their friends without even telling their friends they're being marketed to. Contests are really big right now as well. So it's not that it's just limited or confined to commercials. And not only that, it's not just television. That's what parents had to worry about 20 years ago was just television. But now it's marketing on the Internet. Marketing in schools has escalated exponentially to the point that in 2000, the federal government called it a growth industry. There's product placement in songs now. So really, the problem is there's hardly any place left in a child's life that is commercial-free. Have people actually advertising towards this, they develop these uh, specific techniques geared towards children specifically? Oh, absolutely. The marketing industry works with child psychologists and also with anthropologists to hone their message very carefully. They do focus groups with kids and also work with people who know child development. And now, in fact, there's research going on around the country using MRIs and brain scans to Hmm. see how marketing affects the brain. Over at Caltech, according to the LA Times, there are psychologists doing that research there, hoping to be able to sell their expertise to corporations. And so so what are the possible effects, then, of this type of marketing towards children? Well, marketing is a factor in childhood obesity. And you know childhood obesity is just a major public health Hmm. problem now, and in fact, one of my colleagues, David Ludwig, who's the head of the obesity clinic at Children's Hospital in Boston, he and his colleagues published a study that's suggesting that this is going to be the first generation of children to have a shorter lifespan than their parents because of the obesity-related problems. The first generation ever. Hmm. So, you know, marketing is a factor in childhood obesity. It's not the sole cause, but, Hmm. you know, nothing is ever the sole cause of of anything with human beings because we're complicated. It's a factor in childhood obesity. It's a factor in eating disorders. Hmm. It's a factor and precocious irresponsible sexuality. It's a factor in youth violence. It's a factor in the erosion of children's creative play, which Mm. sounds trivial until you realize that play is the foundation of critical thinking and of problem solving and of creativity. It's a factor in materialistic values and it's a factor in family stress, you know, just virtually out of control in this country. 
So why, why is it particularly effective with children where it's not so much so with adults, perhaps? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think that marketing is effective with adults. Hmm. You know, I'm susceptible to marketing. Everybody that I know is susceptible to marketing. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who isn't, but children are more susceptible. And kids are not adults in teeny tiny bodies. Their brains are growing and developing. They don't have good judgment. You know, judgment is something you acquire over time. They're more held sway to their emotions as kids get older. Are there all the hormonal changes? They're susceptible to peer pressure and identity issues. They're very vulnerable. I mean, that's why we've always, you know, as a society, have laws that, you know, protect kids and acknowledge the fact that they aren't adults. Are there any particular offenders in this area of marketing towards children, particularly? Companies? Oh, sure. There are marketing companies. You know, there are major mark, big marketing companies that have divisions that focus on children. And there are marketing companies that just focus on children. Hmm. And the thing is that everybody is doing it. So it's not even just children's products. But, you know, airlines market to kids, hotels market to kids. And they do that for two reasons. One of the things that the car car companies market to kids. And one of the things they want is what they call cradle-to-grave brand loyalty. Mm. They want to train brand loyal customers. But also they do it because children influence an enormous amount of spending. Well, I think that's uh, no surprise to anybody who has kids, really. Right, (laughs) right. And since it really is no surprise, I mean, why aren't more people uh, concerned about this or doing something about it? Well, you know, we're a country that's in love with the market at Mm. the moment. And advertising, it's deceptive in so many ways. And one of the ways it's deceptive is that it looks kind of fun, a lot of it. It's just entertainment. It doesn't hurt when it's going in. So people don't realize, I think, that they're susceptible to it. And the other thing is that we're also a country right now that believes a lot in self-determination and personal responsibility. So it's people don't want to acknowledge that in terms of children, this is a $15 billion industry Mm. that is growing and has enormous influence on kids. So how how do you recommend then that we try and change the situation? What needs to be done? Well, I think one of the things that we need to do is recognize that this is a societal issue. It's not a family issue. One family in isolation can't combat a $15 billion industry. It's not Mm -hmm. a level playing field. Mm. And once we need to see this as a social issue like civil rights, this is about the rights of children to grow up and the rights of parents to raise them without being undermined by greed. And once we characterize it that way, then we need to take social action approaches to do something about it. This needs to be approached through direct action and through legislation and through grassroots organizing. Is, is that being done? Or it is. It, yeah. It's really, I mean, I work with the coalition. We were called Stop Commercial Exploitation of Children, and we've changed our name. We're the Campaign for a Commercial-Free Childhood. We decided it would be better to be for something than just <laughs> against something. And our website is www commercialfreechildhood.org and you can go to our website and download tools for educating people in your community about marketing. I mean, where we are with this issue is at the need for public education and raising public awareness because I think, as you said, I mean, it's not on people's radar screens. Mm -hmm. It's starting to be because of a lot of activist groups around the country and it's starting to be on the radar screen. There's starting to be more media attention paid to marketing to kids. But anyway, we have downloadable fact sheets and, and for people to use to go into their schools and say, you know, there's a problem with marketing in schools and here's what the problem is. There's a problem with, with sodas in schools. Here's what the problem is. Here's what the impact of marketing is. 
so that's one thing. The other thing that our organization does is we take we take on actions. So when Chemlon, the pesticide company, partnered with the United States Youth Soccer Association, we partnered with a bunch of environmental groups and did an emailing and telephone campaign to the United States Youth Soccer Association, urging them to end the partnership. And in fact, they did not re- renew their partnership with Chemlon. What Chemlon was doing, essentially, USYS sold them their mailing list, and they were direct mailing kids, you know, to the parents of Jimmy Jones, the soccer player, information about pesticides. And that's kind of icky because, you know, there's a lot of concern about children and pesticides anyway. And then the parents were kind of pressured to buy the products because there was a kickback to the United States Youth Soccer Association. Mm. We were successful in that one. When the American Pediatric Dental Association accepted a million-dollar grant from Coca-Cola, we worked with dentists to send a public letter, you know, asking Mm. them to not take the money. We were not successful in that one, but a lot of people were pretty outraged about it. So I guess we're running a little bit out of time here, but I'm curious, so what can parents do, for instance, then to try and educate their children in regards to this this issue? One of the things is that parents need to educate themselves first. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is it's helpful if you talk to other parents and you find groups of people who are concerned about it so you're not all alone. I mean, that's really important. And you can try to take on marketing specifically in your schools, for instance. Mm -hmm. The other thing is within the home, parents need to look at their own consumption and understand their own vulnerabilities to it, to talk to kids about marketing, although we need to talk to children about marketing, but it's not clear that understanding marketing is necessarily a defense against it, because marketing appeals to emotion and not intellect. Another thing is get kids involved in altruism in some ways. Altruism is a good antidote to materialism. If they haven't branded nature yet, and this is easier for middle-class kids and upper-middle-class kids, but you know, to get an appreciation of nature, the wonder of nature, that's an antidote to materialism. Participating in the community and community values are an antidote, but it's not enough. I mean, I think we really have to see this as a societal issue. Uh, Dr. Lynn, I think it's uh, good advice, and I, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on Birth of Grox. Sure. And you were just listening to Dr. Susan Lin from Harvard University discussing how to create a commercial-free childhood. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and fortunately, uh, our guest, Dr. Susan Lynn, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, child-friendly or not. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they child-friendly or not? Dr. Lynn, are you ready to play a game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Number one, child-friendly or not, the popular children's character, Barney. Well, there's evidence that kids who watch Barney did engage in more so- pro-social behavior. On the other hand, Barney markets you know, huge numbers mm. of products to kids and food and all that kind of things as well. I mean, I guess at this point I'd have to say not. That might not come as much of a surprise for some people, but... <laughs> uh-huh. All right, so number two, Michael Jackson. Well, not. <laughs> I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's just creepy. Whatever. I have no idea what he did with those boys or didn't do with the boys, but the whole thing about the Neverland and bringing the kids there is, is just really creepy. It is a little strange, yeah. Uh, number three, Jedi Master Yoda. Well, you know, within the context of just Star Wars, I mean, I feel like such a grouch. I mean, I really loved Yoda. So the Star Wars is coming out, the new movie, and it's there's promotion with M&Ms where you're supposed to collect 75 M&M wrappers. You would have to eat 45 pounds of M&Ms. Wow. Uh, let's see, number four is the Teletubbies. Well, the Teletubbies, are that's a no-brainer. That's absolutely not. Okay. Teletubbies was imported from Britain by PBS as and marketed as educational for children as young as one when they had no evidence or research, even knowing how babies watch television. I mean, Teletubbies was just a complete scam. Very creative show, but they partnered with Burger King, they partnered with McDonald's. It, it wasn't educational. Uh, and number five, finally, President of the United States, George W. Bush. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I work at the Children's AIDS Program in Boston. And we've yeah. been defunded. I mean, he's hurting children sort of up, down, left, right, and backwards. Yeah. I think he's hurting a lot of things more than just children. But right. anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Grinch. I know it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Lynn, I want to thank you very much again for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks, playing our game, the Grokatron 5000, and, of course, is, uh, discussing how to establish a commercial-free childhood. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Hey, you come over here, you come over here to the Brooklyn Dogs. You know, we got some great dogs here, but you know, sometimes we're wondering, how do them particles interact? Well, that's the purpose of the Feynman diagrams, you know? And that's the question of the week. Feynman diagrams, they tell you how these particles interact. You don't have to know all about that crazy mass stuff. It's just like interaction, just like the hot dogs and the buns, man. This great stuff. Mm, thank you, Louie. And this week's question of the week, it surrounds us, it binds us. Mm, it's in your food, it's in your paint, it's gorgum. But what is it? Mm. If you think you know the answer or know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll get out of a sticky situation. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. Oh, 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 oh